Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. I want to make sure that our next speaker has plenty of time, so I'm going to introduce our 11:30 speaker, Dr. Jane Hong. Jane Hong is Associate Professor of History at Occidental College and the author of Opening the Gates of Asia, a Trans-Pacific History of How America Repealed Asian Exclusion. A public-facing historian, she appears in the PBS docu-series Asian Americans and has consulted for television programs including Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. and has penned op-eds for The Washington Post and The LA Times. An active public speaker, Hong has shared her expertise with the Brookings Institution, Uber, and NPR's The Takeaway. In addition to academic and faith-based venues, her current book project under contract with Oxford University Press explores how post-1965 Asian migration has changed U.S. evangelical institution and politics. Hong serves on the editorial board of the Journal of American History, she received her PhD from Harvard and her BA from Yale. Jane is also a personal friend and a fantastic colleague. I love talking about anything related to Asian American and Asian American faith and Christianity with Jane. And if you really want a stimulating and current conversation, check out her Twitter thread on the Netflix series Beef, full of interesting comments and commentary. Welcome, Jane. The floor is yours. Thank you, David. Um, and thank you to all the organizers. So to David, to Easton, and to Princeton Theological Seminary, different centers. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak with you all today. As usual, it's earlier here in Los Angeles. So if my voice catches a little bit, it's because it's still um, a little bit earlier here than it is over there. It's so wonderful to be with you all, and I'm just so grateful um, for these opportunities to share with broader audiences. I've been thinking a lot about kind of how my work can serve broader publics beyond academics and scholars. Um, and in particular, my current research, as many of you know, because I've interviewed many of you, I see many of you in the room that I've interviewed so far. You know, I think a lot about how my current book research on Asian American evangelicals, I think a lot about how this work <clears throat> can serve folks in the church, church leaders, as well as lay people, and really anyone who's interested in these histories of, of race and evangelicalism, race and Christianity generally, and race and politics in America. So I'm really happy to be here with you all today. So today I'm going to speak about how post-1965 migrations changed U.S. Protestant Christianity. And here you just have an image. This is from, I think, a 2014 Christianity Today piece called Silent No More. I think it's an image from an Asian American church. So when I think about Christianity Today, Protestant Christianity, I think about the face of an Asian American, and I think many of you might as well, because of the communities you belong to, the churches you attend, the parachurch organizations you might belong to or even serve. And so I wanted to give a little bit of historical context and then maybe give a few snapshots from kind of ways that um, Christianity, Protestant Christianity is being changed by Asian Americans. So we first have to start with the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act. And 
In terms of what it does, I think, you know, for scholars who study this, there's so many different narratives, so many different conversations. Um, the very basics of the law are that first, it really just overhauls the entire U.S. immigration system. So by the 1960s, the system that had been in place for, I guess, 40 years by that time was the National Origins Quota System, which essentially assigns each nation in the world a specific quota based on populations in the United States. Um, and the way that this quota system was engineered and kind of structured, it heavily favored Northern and Western Europeans over Eastern and Southern Europeans. And it essentially excludes Asians from migrating to the United States for long-term settlement. And so this whole system had essentially kept Asian immigration artificially low. The numbers are really low before the 1960s. So the 65 Immigration Act, it completely changes the system. So now, instead of thinking about where people are coming from in terms of nationality, now the system admits people based on two things. The first was employment and skilled labor. So whether they fit the categories that the Department of Labor deemed necessary, places where the United States needed more workers. So employment and skilled labor on the one hand and family relationships on the other. Um, and there were ceilings on the number of immigrants who were allowed to come into the U.S. The ceilings were based on the Eastern Hemisphere, so where Asia is, and the Western Hemisphere, so North America, South America. Um, but importantly, migrants who came as family members, so the kind of family members of U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, they did not count against the ceiling. So in some ways, they were completely unrestricted in the number of family members of U.S. citizens and permanent residents who can come into the United States. And so actually, that's how the majority of Asians historically have come into the U.S. They've come through family relationships. So what does this do? This basically dramatically transforms the racial demographics of U.S. immigration. So up until 1965, um, 1968, when this law took effect, up to 90 percent of immigrants were coming from Europe, primarily northern and western Europe. But after 1968, when this law took effect, essentially since then, the majority of immigrants coming to the U.S. have come from Asia and Latin America. And when historians talk about this consequence, I mean, it really is unintended. And if you look back at the historical documents, if you look back at the congressional debates, most people did not expect that Asians and Latin American folks would come in such large numbers. And in fact, for many people, you could argue this was a largely undesirable outcome, but this is what happens. Um, and if you take a look on the right, these are small, but I wanted to just kind of give a sense of how these things happen. And maybe I don't have to tell many of you, if you are a member of a family, someone who came in under the 65 Act and brought in family members. Um, I often tell the story about how my parents came in. My mother was a nurse trained in South Korea. She and my father immigrated to the U.S. in 1975. She was able to get a visa. And then through her, my father, and then later my grandparents, aunts and uncles um, were able to come into the U.S. So in terms of chain migration the, at the top right, that person at the very top is my mother. <laughs> Um, and just the graph below gives you a sense of how even over the last um, maybe 20 years, the majority of migrants coming to the U.S. are coming as the family members of citizens and permanent residents. So this numerically explodes the number of Asians in the United States by substantively ending Asian exclusion. And in other kind of talks I give and other kind of pieces of my research, you know, I look at the rise of the Asian exclusion regime um, between the 1870s and the 1930s. And I look more particularly at the end of the Asian exclusion regime. So my first book is really about how these laws get dismantled. But the important thing to think about, I think, 
taken as a whole is that for much of American history, for much of U.S. history, Asians are racially barred from immigrating to the United States. And there's a longer history here we could talk about, but this history is really formative and instrumental because many historians argue that it's the Asian exclusion laws barring Asians from immigrating and barring Asians from U.S. citizenship. It's these laws that effectively help racialize Asians as unassimilable or somehow un-American or by today's parlance as perpetual foreigners, right? People who could never really be American. And so rather than thinking about the way people, you know, racially or racialize Asian Americans today as kind of coming out of nowhere, one of the histories that we look to are these legal histories of immigration and naturalization. So here are just the laws that first barred Asians by group and then later as a whole, anyone from Asia. And then the laws that repealed Asian exclusion very gradually and very symbolically. If you take a look at just the number, right, so the quotas that were given first to China, then to India, the Philippines, later to all Asian nations, including places like Korea. So, I mean, these were really small numbers, 100 people a year, 105 people a year. Essentially, you could argue that's still exclusion. It's just kind of symbolic inclusion. So it's really not until the 1965 Immigration Act that these exclusion laws were completely overhauled. And that is why, in many ways, right, this is how Asians begin coming to the U.S. in large numbers. The other thing that 1965 does is it transforms the ethnic demographic. So it diversifies Asian America itself. And let me just say, um, you know, there's a lot to say about the 1965 Immigration Act. So it forms the basis for a lot of what we see today. So U.S. immigration policy and practice. And even today, under the 65 Act and subsequent immigration legislation, Asians represent the fastest growing racial group in the United States. And today, people from China and India make up some of the largest migration flows to the U.S., um, rivaling even Mexico, which historically has been one of the top senders of migrants to the United States. And I think even just recently, yeah, it's now China and India who send the most. If you notice, you know, I titled my talk post-1965 Asian Migrations rather than post-65 Asian Immigration. And the reason I did that is that refugee migrations also shaped Asian America during the post-1965 years. And so I'm going to go from this slide to kind of thinking about who are the different Asian American groups who began entering in large numbers after 1965. And here, of course, I'm talking in part about refugee migrations from Southeast Asia. So the migration of Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laotians, and Hmong. And, you know, refugees are not immigrants in the traditional sense, in that they did not volitionally or choose to come to the United States in the same way. They were displaced and compelled by circumstances. Um, here, violence, war, all kinds of displacements. So in order to recognize the very different circumstances under which many Southeast Asian refugees came to the U.S. starting in 1975, scholars will often use the term migration or migrants rather than immigration or immigrants kind of be a more inclusive category. So here you have some numbers, and this is, these are particularly for Vietnamese uh, refugee migrants who are coming after 1975, and LPR stands for Lawful Permanent Resident. So the 65 you know, Act and, and post-Vietnam refugee migration, they actually work together to diversify Asian America. So here we're talking about kind of the Vietnamese immigrant population, which is actually today the fourth largest Asian immigrant group. So, you know, historically over time, the numbers have shifted. Before 1980, Japanese Americans were the largest Asian ethnic group. Beginning in 1980, it was Chinese Americans. 
very recently, so Filipino Americans have kind of moved up. And I think I now believe they're number two or three. And very, very recently, I think in the last few years, Indian Americans have actually become the largest Asian ethnic group in the United States. So it's really Indians, Chinese, Filipinos, and Vietnamese Americans are the largest by number in terms of Asian American ethnic groups. So this is just to give you a sense of who we're talking about. Now, writ large, you know, the advent of unprecedented Asian migration after 1965 really changes U.S. Protestantism. And this is Asian migration alongside other non-white migrations. So migrations from Latin America and migrations from Africa, which also jumped after the 65 Act. By one estimate, as many as 75% of the Asians who migrated to the U.S. between 1965 and 2000 had some kind of Protestant or some kind of Christian background. And among the 42% of Asian Americans who identify as Christian, the majority are Protestant. And among these, the majority of Protestants identify as evangelicals. And among these, on the right, you can see Korean Americans make up about one-third to about 40% of Asian American evangelicals. These numbers are from the 2012 Pew Research Report, which I think a lot of folks use. Um, sociologist Jerry Z. Park at Baylor is also doing work particularly about Asian American evangelicals. And so the numbers he gave me as of the last couple years is that Koreans make up about 30 to 40 percent of Asian American evangelicals. So institutionally, and I'm going to talk, you know, as I mentioned, I'm writing a book about evangelicals in particular. But in order to write about evangelicals, I have to think about the big picture. Um, and we've also had conversations, and I'm sure many of you have conversations about what are the distinctions between mainline and evangelical. Um, so I'll speak about both, probably with a focus on evangelicals, because it is the focus of my research. So institutionally, new migrations boost the profile and they shift the orientation, you could argue, of Asians in mainline denominations as well as evangelical denominations. So one area I lo had looked at is at Asian caucuses, so ethnic caucuses within mainline denominations. Here I'm talking about the Asian Presbyterian Caucus. I'm talking about the, um, the Asian caucus within the UMC. You know, so in many of these cases, you have a growing number of immigrant or foreign-born members entering the United States in the 60s, 70s, and after, and they're joining these churches. Um, and they're also participating in these caucuses. And so there's a way that they begin to kind of reshape some of the conversation and redirect some of the focus and orientation of what these mainline groups are thinking about. For example, I noticed that there is a growing interest in pro-democracy movements in South Korea and the Philippines during the 1970s and 1980s. The UMC is involved with these. Um, the Presbyterian Church, the UPC USA is involved with these. And again, these, you know, these developments were in no part, no small part influenced by the immigrant um, Asian Christians who had moved from these places and who were still deeply invested in their homeland struggles. And so they were reshaping the conversations. And I see this to some extent within evangelical spaces as well. More concretely, you know, post-1965 migrants have reshaped evangelical denominations. Uh, one example I often think about is the PCA or the Presbyterian Church of America. Um, in 1982, the PCA approves the creation of Korean language presbyteries. By the 1990s, these make up the fastest growing segment of the denomination. And today, Korean language presbyteries or KLPs make up about 10% of the entire denomination in terms of churches um, and membership. And I often also think about this, that in ways not often recognized, these Korean language presbyteries have actually become a pathway for many second generation Korean American leaders to take up positions of leadership within historically white evangelical institutions and organizations. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that at the very end. 
Post-1965, migrants have also changed seminaries, and in turn, the church, insofar as seminaries serve as training grounds for future clergy and future church leaders. You know, and here, if you look at data from ATS or the Association of Theological Schools over the past few decades, David and I talk about this, and it's true. So non-white students are often the only demographic that's still growing in terms of seminary enrollment. And I think this is true across mainline and evangelical institutions. And, you know, all this suggests that, again, if seminaries, if the church kind of survives and thrives, it will largely be because of Americans of color, including Asian Americans. So I write particularly about Fuller Seminary, um, and I know we'll hear later from Gabe Katanis, uh, who's part of the growing kind of communities of Asian Americans at Fuller Seminary. So Fuller becomes one of the largest evangelical seminaries by the 1970s. And, you know, when you begin to think about the 1980s and after, so a lot of Fuller's growth is driven by um, students of color, including many international and foreign students from Asia, including from Korea, for example. Um, but by the 1990s and beyond, much of the growth is also happening among Asian American students. So English speaking, often U.S. born Asian Americans who are not immigrants. And by the early 2000s, Asian Americans are one of the fastest growing demographics among seminary enrollment across the board. And so what does this mean for evangelical and also mainline seminaries? Post-65 migrants are also changing historically white parachurch organizations. And here I focus on evangelical parachurch organizations. And I know there's a bunch of folks in the group who represent EPIC. I think I saw Tommy earlier. I saw some university folks. You know, there are whole books actually written about Asian Americans and their participation in parachurch organizations. So God's New Whiz Kids by Rebecca Y. Kim is one example. So in the late 1980s, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a historically white parachurch group with roots in Great Britain, declared its commitment to multi-ethnicity. By then, far and away, InterVarsity's largest non-white contingent among both students and staff were of Asian descent. And I think UC Berkeley's InterVarsity chapter was already majority Asian American, even by the mid to late 1980s. And it was Asian American staff who championed and pushed through the creation of ethnic-specific Asian American chapters beginning in the 1990s. Um, and some of these first chapters were at Northwestern, University of Chicago. Later chapters were founded at Harvard-MIT, so AACF, um, UT Austin, Rutgers, and other places across the country. And so when you think about just kind of who is going to these parentage organizations, who are members, who are staff, right, we know from our own experiences, but I also know just from looking at the data, um, that these are, right, large Asian and Asian American populations. The other thing I'll say about the parachurch organizations um, is that there are also particular gender dynamics. Um, and when you think about why so many Chinese American women in particular, for example, join university in the 1970s and 1980s and why they become so prominent in the organization. Um, so many folks I've interviewed, people like Jeanette Yep, Nina Lau Branson, who join university during these years, they told me that part of the reason they joined is that there were very few other opportunities for Chinese American women to serve in ministry full time because churches would generally not ordain them. And so parachurch organizations became one way that they were able to pursue their call to ministry in ways that were meaningful. Um, and so there's a longer history I could talk about, and I write about this in my current research. It's one of the, my favorite chapters in the book, actually. Um, and we know that many of us know that today, InterVarsity is led by a second-generation Taiwanese-American named Tom Lin, who was actually one of the staff who helped create the Asian-American Christian Fellowship at Harvard in the 1990s. And he has been the leader of InterVarsity since, I believe, 2016, 2017. And I also look at how kind of InterVarsity becomes a space where you have in Asian-American staff, they're really wrestling with questions about kind of where Asian-Americans fit in these racial conversations, particularly after 1992 Los Angeles. And so that's one part of the chapter that I write about. 
This is an area I don't write about in my book, but something I've been thinking about recently. So the cover story of this month's Christianity Today looks at corporate worship and the ways that worship music has become increasingly profitable. And so there's a story. The, the story opens with a private equity firm that bought nine, that basically bought a bunch of worship songs and their licenses for $900,000. So this whole cover story talks about the very lucrative Christian music industry. Um, and one of the things I've been looking at, or just kind of interested in, is to think about how Asian Americans in the United States, but also, you know, Asians in Asia, how they also participate in this industry. Um, church worship music is incredibly popular among Asian Americans. Many of you, maybe some of you, did see the show Beef on Netflix, right? So you think about the songs that were used even in that 10-episode series, right? It's worship songs by Elevation, um, by Chris Tomlin. I think there's like some Bethel songs that might be used. These are all incredibly profitable organizations in ways that I think people might not think as much about. And so I, I know that there's been a conversation about kind of thinking about decolonizing Asian American worship led by folks like Gloria Fan Chang. And so these are questions I've been thinking about too, even though it won't necessarily be in my book. These are things that I would encourage folks to look at this piece. It's actually fascinating to, to think about from the perspective of the Christian worship music industry, how Asian Americans make up an important consumer base, even if they're rarely envisioned as the main target audience or demographic for those organizations. And in my last few minutes, briefly, I wanted to talk about the impact of post-65 migration on Asian American faith communities themselves, which I think is a lot of what we'll hear about today and tomorrow, which as a way of kind of setting up that conversation. So post-65 migrants, you know, what they did was they really returned Asian America to a majority foreign-born community. So the 1940s to the 1970s were the only time in U.S. history when U.S.-born Asian Americans outnumbered immigrants. And this had lots of political consequences to kind of shift the focus of Asian American Christians to think more about domestic communities, to think more about social engagement. And that's chapter one of my book. Um, but the reshaping of Asian American demographics to become, again, a more immigrant dominated demographic that really does, um, it throws the future of the ethnic church and, and kind of immigrant churches into question. So it re refreshes intergenerational contests over leadership and direction. And again, you know, during the pre and post 65 periods, the ethnic church remains the main unit of Asian American Protestant Christianity. Um, and of course, we do have the rise of pan-Asian churches and you later in the 1990s and after have the rise of multi-ethnic churches. But the ethnic church remains, I mean, remains and it persists. Um, and so when we think about kind of what this means for Asian American faith communities, there's a lot of questions about whether intergenerational dynamics can be resolved and kind of thinking about how power does and does not transfer to second and third generations. I will say Japanese Americans are the only outliers to this broader story because of all the countries in Asia, Japan sends comparatively fewer new immigrants to the U.S. And so by this point, I think by the 1970s, 1980s, Japanese American churches had already begun developing English language ministries. These churches often employed kind of U.S. born English speaking white clergy, Asian Americans. And in many ways, Japanese American churches come to serve as a model for Chinese Americans and other church leaders as early as the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so I'll just mention that. For most other Asian American groups, however, the post-1965 reality of a, of a majority immigrant or foreign-born community meant that, again, these intergenerational contests over church leadership and over church kind of membership persist and in many, case, many cases repeats over and over. Uh, moreover, because some ethnic and immigrant churches continue to recruit leaders from Asia, 
who had limited understanding of the U.S. or Asian American context. The challenges persist and in some cases actually get worse over time. All in all, this means that the intergenerational contests over church leadership have never really ended. And this is part of what I think Helen Lee talks about in her 1996 article from Christianity Today about the silent exodus. She talks more about a broader phenomenon where, you know, there is, she talks about, quote, the alarming rate at which the children of Asian immigrants are leaving immigrant churches, and in many cases, the Christian faith. And she talks about how many of these younger folks, the children of post-65 migrants, they were abandoning immigrant churches because they found them, quote, irrelevant, culturally stifling, and ill-equipped to develop them spiritually for life in a multicultural America, end quote. The thing that, about that's, that's really interesting is that Lee writes this piece in 1996, but, you know, I think for many folks who have been in ethnic and immigrant church spaces for longer, they know that this was not a 1990s phenomenon. I mean, in fact, you could argue that this is a phenomenon that persists uh, even today in many, many church um, spaces. But going back even further, one of the groups I found really interesting is, you know, Chinese church communities were talking about these intergenerational conflicts and dilemmas in the 1970s and even before. <clears throat> There's a group called FACE, which is the Fellowship of American Chinese Evangelicals, which becomes an outgrowth of NACOS, which is a consortium of Chinese evangelicals that was crystallized in the 1970s. In the 1970s, FACE members, these are U.S. born, so ABCs, American born Chinese, they were already talking about these issues, um, these questions about, you know, whether ABCs could last in the church, folks who felt stifled and marginalized by leadership, the leadership of overseas-born Chinese Christian leaders, and particularly about church leadership, thinking about whether ABCs or American-born Chinese pastors had a, had a part, had a role um, in Chinese churches, whether they would be given the authority um, and the leadership, where were they, whether they would be empowered to lead their own congregations by the immigrant communities or the immigrant leaders who preceded them. And I also see these same kinds of struggles in Korean American churches, regardless of whether they're mainline or evangelical, there are still ongoing struggles between immigrant senior pastors and second gen, third gen, younger U.S. born church leaders over who ultimately makes the big decisions for church congregations, questions about whether Asian language ministries and English language ministries, whether they can coexist and power share within the same church structures, whether it's only possible if they split and kind of become independent, right? And so again, I don't probably have to tell most of you, uh, many of you who've been in these spaces know these struggles firsthand and know them better than I do. But what's been really interesting to think about is, again, because of the ongoing migration of Asian, of Asians to the United States, again, New immigrants, new migrants refresh, in many cases, refresh these intergenerational dynamics. So, you know, I think when Helen Lee wrote that piece in the 1990s, my guess is that at least some people thought that these issues would be more resolved over time, you know, as more folks get born in the United States, you know, as kind of dynamic shift. But the ongoing realities of Asian immigration means that, again, these conflicts actually persist across many different spaces. And that's been something that I have found really interesting and also in some ways maybe unexpected. Maybe that was naive, but I think these are things that folks will address in part um, during our conversation. And these are things folks still struggle with in the day-to-day. -day. In closing, to think about kind of what the future will look like. I mean, I often use this slide because I think it's so striking to think about even over the last 10 years, just the number of Asian American leaders who have become visible in positions of authority in some of the most kind of historically white 
particularly evangelical organizations, but I think this is also true for mainline denominations and organizations as well. And so thinking about what the future will look like, right, it's very unclear in some ways, um, but I think this is part of why this conversation we're having at the conference is so important, because I do think we're at kind of one of these inflection points where, you know, Asian Americans are more visible than ever before, but then what will that mean in terms of, right, the actual shape of Asian American Christianity and the shape of U.S. Protestant Christianity more generally? So I'll stop here. Thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences 